welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, we're joined with Sherwood, Woody, Nice, and he is going to be one of the most interesting guests we've had on the podcast because he is one of the architects of really the way that we understand crowdfunding today. That all started during the transition in, and he actually helped form the transition towards what we know as crowdfunding today by negotiating with those on Capitol Hill. Today, he's both a principal at Crowdfund Capital Advisors and also a co-founder of Guard. Uh, we'll have Woody tell us all about Guard in a few minutes, but his current role with Crowdfund Capital Advisors and Guard played hand in hand. So first, thank you so much for being here today. We have a ton to talk about in terms of how you really started what we know in the world of crowdfunding today. And you know that's really the beginning of the conversation when entrepreneurs think about fundraising. And you now have worked through your career to create also you know, that exit conversation around liquidity and what actually matters when it comes to transactions. So our listeners going from podcast to podcast will remember last week, we talked all about investing in late stage uh, opportunities. Woody is one of the most important people we could possibly talk to when it comes to uh, really getting into the minutia of what the incentives are and what the regulatory environments have been like and what they are today. And all of these mechanics create an environment where entrepreneurs can create the best fundraising through exit opportunities. And it's just going to be a really great episode. So again, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's super exciting to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm humbled by what you said. I don't look at myself that way, but uh, I am excited to unpeel the layers of this onion because there are many, um, but it's, I think we're in a really, really super exciting time. So you were a CFO in your previous life and you then, we were just talking about, I thought it was all the way back in 2008, but it was really 2012 where you started taking all of what you had learned into starting to figure out how you could influence the regulatory environment around crowdfunding. Can you take us back in time, you know, a little over a decade and tell us what you were thinking about and what led you to you know, getting started on this decade long journey? Definitely. So, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, you have great ideas, you need customers, you need cash to scale and grow. I had started a company with my brother-in-law called Flavor RX. We flavored, flavored medicine for children, so they're more compliant. The coolest thing about our company was a mother got her kid to take her medicine by going into the pharmacy and asking the pharmacist to flavor it. The kid took the medicine. She's like, oh my God, you just saved me, you know, countless hours of struggling. I would get a phone call the next day how do I invest in your business? And I was just like, well, you can't because we can only raise money from accredited investors. And when my lawyers told me this, I was like, well, this is a complete missed opportunity. Like I have hundreds of mothers calling me saying, how can I become an investor in your business? They can be a marketing agent for my company. Why can't I take money from them? They're like, well, these laws were written 80 years ago to protect you know, retail investors and you have to live by them. And I was like, well, that's stupid. And so I just lived by them. You know, We raised money from VCs, we actually sold the company to a private equity group when we exited. But I always thought, why do we live under these laws that were written 80 years ago? Two friends of mine from Silicon Valley and I sat down and um, we all went to business school together. They're entrepreneurs as well. They thought the, the, the method under which we raised money from VCs was antiquated. So we were like, well, what happens if we took the principles of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Kiva, and just merged them together with these exemptions whereby we raised the money for our companies? So we wrote this eight bullet point framework for investment crowdfunding. We went to the SEC. They said it was cute. And they said, you should head over to that building with the white dome on it. I kid you not. 
naively enough, we just walked over there because we had a few days in Washington that we budgeted to be there. And we started knocking on the doors of both Republicans and Democrats. People were shocked that entrepreneurs were there because they're only used to seeing lobbyists or lawyers or crazy people. And they're like, well, you don't really fit into any of those buckets. Why are you here? And we said, well, we're here to talk about jobs. And they listened. And so we had, you know, a representative McHenry, who's a Republican from North Carolina, jump on it. And uh, we had the helping of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council. And they introduced us to the people on both sides of the aisle that were important. That led to the framework being introduced in Congress. The White House uh, heard what we were doing. They heard uh, me testify at one of the hearings. They called. I promptly hung up on them because I didn't realize it was actually the White House calling. And I thought it was a friend joking me. They did call back, thankfully. <laughs> and we collaboratively worked together. But, you know, this is probably the last time Congress has actually done something you know, in a collaborative effort. And in 460 days, we took this idea for investment crowdfunding and got it through both chambers. And I got rid of the White House as President Obama signed the bill into law in 2012. Did you ever expect that now people can go and raise off of, you know, going on Instagram live, essentially from, you know, raising through Rex? Yeah, I mean, Essentially, you had that where we have this no user and gig economy where everyone has another stream of income. And did you ever envision what we have now back then when you were doing this? I know you had that ideal and uh, that pain point that you went to solve for, but uh, did you ever expect it to explode? I think you said there was almost a billion dollars raised this year through RegCF. Is that right? Yeah. So we built a database to collect information on all companies raising money online. Uh, we focused on regulation crowdfunding because that has the full disclosure regime, but we do work with Reg A offerings and 506C. Right. Um, but our focus is really on investment crowdfunding. And, you know, the industry launched in May 2016. Just this past month, it surpassed a billion dollars in funding. And to answer your question, no, when <laughs> we put this together, I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great to use a website to be able to allow people that have a customer list or their own friends and family to invest in their business the same way that you back a, a campaign on a Kickstarter or Indiegogo to see people using, you know, you know, Twitter, Instagram, you know, uh, YouTube live as the outreach, the public solicitation, I think is awesome because it really connects the people to the entrepreneur in a way that a website just doesn't do by itself. So I think the advances in technology are really benefiting the industry because it really ties you closer to the people that are raising capital. And I think that's all good, too, because I think it brings this level of transparency that you otherwise don't have in the private capital markets or was missing even when we came to Washington, D.C. with the framework for this. Right. I would love to continue. We'll have a very all um, you know uplifting and I'm going to celebrate all of this success. I wouldn't want to challenge because we've had an angel uh, network creator on the podcast. We've had late stage VCs. And, you know, there are a lot of critiques where there feels like today there's still be maybe some missing information where, you know, really seasoned investors will say that person should not be making these high risk investments with that little of capital, never move the needle. They're taking outsized risks. The you know, entrepreneurs will say, you know, I would love to expand my cap table, but it's a lot to manage. And, you know, that's starting to change. So just to take a moment to say that this hasn't been like a, a very, you know, it's been over a decade where some of these solutions have taken place. What do you say to people when they kind of argue, you know, there are some real challenges that still exist with information flow and, you know, really high quality opportunities. Do you say, you know what, well, 
only I like Sequoia or Andreessen or you know late you know just giant VCs can source the best opportunities or their real opportunities for you know for retail investors and for those entrepreneurs looking to raise in just a more unique way. Okay, so let's jump in with investor protection. Okay. Yeah. Let's assume that these angels and these sophisticated investors have their wholehearted interest in the well-being of every other person out there, which, you know, I'm, it's very sarcastic for me to say right now <laughs> because they don't. This is just them talking. But the reality is we saw that and we took that into the regulation. You know, any sophisticated investor, any accredited investor can risk everything that they have on one company. Do they? No, because they're smart enough to know to diversify their assets. Now, when we built this framework, we were concerned that people might be risking more than they can afford to lose. This is the only segment in the private capital markets where investors are capped on how much exposure they can have. So we built into the framework based on net income or annual salary, I should say. But you know, as an individual investor, you know how much you make or how much you have saved thresholds as to how much you can invest. Okay, that doesn't exist anywhere else. People will tell us that's pedantic, but quite frankly, that was an investor protection mechanism we put in there. So the investors that are saying, I think it's too risky for certain investors to put in there, my response to that is, is, well, there are caps and limits on how much people can risk. That being said, if you are an accredited investor, your caps are much higher than if you're a retail investor. Now, in terms of deal sourcing, let's unpack that one. That used to be an argument that was, you know, seen as this is adverse selection. Only the bad companies will come online. Only the bad companies will go to crowdfunding. And the reality is great ideas do not reside only in Silicon Valley, New York City, or Boston. You know, they reside all over the country. They come out of universities. They come out of uh, incubators and accelerators. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is capital isn't located only in, yes, there is plenty of it in Silicon Valley. There is plenty of it in New York City and Boston, but there is also plenty of it outside of those you know, hubs. And what this does, it allows those people that have viable business ideas and a community of people that believe in them to actually say, you know what, I'm willing to risk some capital and put it behind them. The data shows that there's a lot of logic in it. People are not investing more than they can afford to lose. We're not having this gold rush mentality of, you know, I got to pour my money into Denver where I'm living, although Denver has turned out to be a pretty great place for crowdfunding, probably because VCs don't you know reside here in the same capacity as they do in Silicon Valley. So it's turned out to be a great substitute for that type of capital. The only other thing I would point out, too, is the logic of all these people were true. Then all the capital would be happening outside of San Francisco Bay Area, outside of New York City. Oddly enough, the most offerings are happening in the Bay Area. The most offerings are happening in New York City. So the deals are the same deals that are being seen in the Bay Area and in New York City with the same investors. And what we've seen is the evolution of this industry where instead of those people saying, you know what, you shouldn't go to crowdfunding, they're saying, well, we should use crowdfunding and we should syndicate our deals to the crowd because the crowd brings something that we don't bring. We can bring deep pockets but they can bring marketing power because they've got a vested interest in the outcome of the business. They can bring connections. Uh, they can bring you know, their own brain power to how we can help scale this business. You know, VCs are great for that Rolodex of people that they might be able to connect you to. But the reality is you can get so much more out of a crowd. So, I mean, I didn't mean to make that any sort of critique. I just knew that that had to be on the minds of all of our listeners who just haven't spent 
you know, the, the decade in exploring and creating this ecosystem. So, you know, those are the common critiques and uh, talking points that sometimes just don't get addressed. And when they do get addressed, they just don't get into the nuanced conversation that we're having right now, which is why this is, uh, this is really fun. So I appreciate that. So just diving back, you take us through the, the DC conversations where they're big, you know, it was everyone kind of set in this needed to be addressed or did you create the, you know, kind of catalyze the demand for this conversation? Uh, you said you had some early support, but how did you pull, you know, some of the slower moving parts of our society through into an innovative um, approach to what you were seeing already developing in a new marketplace? I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, we were at the right time in the right place. So 2008, we had the recession. Washington was looking for solutions. We went and showed up in Washington in 2010 with this. And people were looking for how do we create jobs in local communities? The whole point of investment-based crowdfunding is you are essentially helping people that have great ideas all over the country create businesses that hire people. The government can't do that on a macro level. And so they need to actually look at innovative solutions like this that can actually solve what they need to solve at the most as basic zip code level. And that's what we delivered to them. That's why we were able to build support for this. We didn't actually have any people pushing back on us until we got in the Senate where we had the investor protection advocates show up and say, grandma's going to lose all her money. And my response to that during one of the testimonies is my grandmother doesn't even know how to turn a computer on. So, you know, there's so many things, you know, they just didn't get the framework. I also learned going to Washington, the people that show up there are paid to say something. They don't actually believe it because I sat in closed doors with people from these organizations that'd be like, oh, my son loves crowdfunding. I'm like, you just sat hearing with me and said that, you know, you're totally against this whole thing, but yet at home, it's totally cool. And so, you know, you leave Washington with this understanding of what's said there and what you see on TV is just to be spoken, but it's not necessarily believed by the people there. So you, it's a little frustrating at times, but that being said, the good thing about that was that's what we were told even by the people that work in Capitol Hill. Like, yeah, you don't really have to listen to them because they don't really believe it. You just need to come up with counter arguments for it. And so we put these you know, protections in there. And I think that's why we were able to get the approval of the White House, because they saw that like, this is a smart way to get a little bit of capital flowing that can create jobs at a local level that we won't be able to accomplish on our own. And, you know, even President Obama called it a game changer at the White House, you know, when he signed the bill into law. So I'm just thinking if that was 10 years ago and we're here now, that may have been maybe one of the biggest legal shifts and illegal framework shifts that's taken place to support entrepreneurs looking to raise money from a crowd of supporters. But I'm wondering outside of maybe you know, some of the equity management tools that are available today and all of the technology around what's uh, going to allow for people to onboard investors and keep them updated with you know, information and allow for, you know, a strategic exit and, you know, have this crowd be you know, happy, wealthy, and well. What do you think the biggest technology shift has been in the last decade or so in terms of supporting this free flow of information? And do you think that there's another technology shift occurring now that may influence the next decade? Well, I think these online investment platforms play into what exactly what you're saying. So 
you know, we created this framework that allows issuers to go out and raise up to $5 million online, but you have to do it on online investment platforms that are registered with the SEC and overseen by FINRA. And then you have to provide a series of disclosures, much like in VCs use when they diligence a company and decide whether or not to invest. So we took the whole process of raising capital and we systematized it and we standardized it in a way that allows these companies to go on these platforms, uh, disclose information for investors to consume. I think that technology itself is disruptive because it provides a central focal point for these transactions to take place. It's not about getting the money. It's about investors having access to information so that they can make an informed decision. And I think that's the pivotal shift, particularly before the private capital markets. Because, you know, in the public markets, we have a structure under which you raise capital and you have to do filings with the SEC. You know, they have to be reviewed and approved. And then your offering can go public, but you also use a broker dealer. There's a tremendous amount of time, effort, money that goes into these IPOs that take place. In the private capital markets, that same sort of structure doesn't exist because, you know, the company goes out, raises money, they do it behind closed doors. And what we tried to do with this is we tried to create a, a structure and a framework. And I, I believe we did that with the private capital markets that say, if you want to raise money from retail investors, you actually have to provide them a certain level of disclosure that they're typically used to in a public setting, but let's scope it down. And I think that's one of the big things that I as an entrepreneur and my experience over time has taught me is one size regulation doesn't fit all. You can't have public company regulation applied to small little companies that are trying to raise capital. You need to scope down the type of regulation. You need to scope down the type of disclosures so that you can benefit from the same type of information without forcing a massive amount of disclosure on a private company that can't sustain the cost of that. Right, right. It is an administrative burden, you know, just plain and simply. So one thing I wanted to sort of touch on is we've been having slowly conversations leading towards public and private markets converging. And then we're seeing some of this interest in investor appetite for earlier and earlier stage investments or secondary entry points to these uh, pre-IPO or even down towards closer to Series B investments, um, Series B backed companies. One thing that I'm starting to think about is these small ecosystems sort of starting to materialize. You know, a, a family office may have a relationship with uh, broker dealers who may be able to find an entry point for them into you know, a late stage venture backed firm. And today we kind of see that starting to trickle down into the ecosystem that this might be a really natural place to bring in guard and you know, you work with your crowdfund capital advisors as well. Where do you see these uh, you know, large markets and smaller pockets of these markets kind of converging and trickling down in terms of infrastructure available? Sorry, I keep asking a sort of technical and packed questions. How do you see the tectonic plates of markets slowly shifting together? You're the person to answer these questions. So I have my magic eight ball. So let me turn that over. No, um, no it's such a right. It's fascinating. We're really in a fascinating time right now. And VCs are swimming upstream, private equity swimming downstream, angel investors are you know, moving all over the place. People are jumping into VC funds. They're growing in scale. They're looking for bigger opportunities. What with this database that we created called CClear. We actually have been running some data analysis using some data scientists to actually create algorithms for what we believe will be the future unicorns. And guess what? They're not coming out of Silicon Valley in New York City. But we can see companies out there that are doing successive rounds online privately, and we're watching their revenues grow. We're watching their earnings grow. 
We're seeing their employees grow. We're seeing their valuations grow over time. We're seeing the amount of money that's being committed to them by the number of investors increasing. So we're looking at that for signals to see where these unicorns are going to be. That's the breeding ground for the next unicorns, okay? So we've got our eyes, ears, and pulse on what's happening there. And we're toying around with, you know, what are we actually going to do with that? You know, we've got ideas for a fund. We've got ideas for, you know, syndicates and all that stuff too that'll, you know, maybe leverage the power of this data um, for early stage investing now and get let people get into it. I don't know. We'll see what plays out there. But the reality is, is that's one side of the equation. You know, capital formation, um, investing in startups and small businesses. The other side of the equation is how do we get out of these companies? Okay. And so when we built this uh, framework for this legislation, one of the things that we put in there was a cap of the amount of time that someone would have to hold these securities before they could be freely transferred. Now we did that to prevent pumping and dumping. We right. didn't want people to actually issue securities, hype up the offering and then sell them the next day. And then investors lose their shirts. The democratization of initial coin offerings, but would have done it slightly differently. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Uh, you know, I think you have a really valid point. You know, people take advantage of people where there's efficiencies in the market. Okay. The fact that you don't have a holding period on something means that someone can come in there, buy a bunch of it, and then push hype out there. And then, you know, push up the price of it. They sell. And then everyone's left, you know, holding these coins that are worthless. I think if you had the holding period attached to it, it would keep the people out that are like, well, I have to wait until I can make my money off of this. They're looking for quick get rich schemes. You know, a holding period on anything pushes, you know, the frauds away. Not that it doesn't happen. There will be fraud and there is fraud everywhere. I'm just saying that when you can put triggers like that in there that, you know, keep people out of the marketplace, I don't think it's such a bad thing. So we put that in there for regulation crowdfunding. And so after one year, provided these are exempt, unregistered, unrestricted securities, you can actually list them for trading on an alternative trading system. Now, the way in which that happens is you can't just go up there and say, here's my securities. I want to sell them. The company actually has to agree to allow their securities to be sold. And then they have to comply with state securities laws in order to do so. Uh, an interesting fact that most people don't realize is when it comes to secondary transfer securities, there's both federal and state jurisdiction there. The states actually have the majority of jurisdiction over the secondary transfer securities because these are not unregistered securities and the transfers are happening with citizens in their states. Now, there's this thing called the manual exemption, and that states if companies provide a current and ongoing disclosures related to the company financial well-being in what's known as a national securities manual, they can be exempt from registration. And so what is that national securities manual? How do you publish your information in it? Well, that exists really for public companies, but that process didn't exist for private companies. So we built a database that collects the data fields that a private company would have to disclose. And we created a online technology tool that allows the company to go to our interface, fill out those forms or via an API, have it fed into our report, then publish it through to a national securities manual where it is reviewed and approved. That allows these securities then to trade freely in um, 42 states. Now in the other states, other seven, you, there are exemptions from registration that you can rely on, but you have to go through a registration process in California and New York. And that's what we show in Guard um, so that you can have freely traded securities in all 50 states. 
Right. So just walk me through some of the uh, incentives from, so if the company has to sign off on this, which I think is a really important thing. As we've talked about, you know, there are some uh, kind of quasi marketplaces that allow some shareholders to, I know that it has to be essentially top down from the founder, from the entrepreneur's perspective, mostly just to keep incentives aligned. And nobody wants an unhappy investor or, you know, some uh, shareholder who feels trapped in the company. But at the same time, there is, you know, the real concern that, you know, you don't want everyone running towards the door either. You know, I don't know what that signals to a, to a market or influences the next fundraise. So how are you working with companies and founders to help facilitate some of the uh, conversations around incentive alignments and kind of convincing them that this is really the next stage of growth by having you know ongoing disclosures. It would be different without guard. Don't get me wrong. I think this conversation only happen if you have a conversation with you know somebody like you and like guard who's you know automated a big piece of providing a route to the actual disclosure process. But can you help me work through some of the uh, ideas as an entrepreneur about letting my shareholders in and out of the firm? One of the things that I think people are afraid of, and again, I think you hit a nail on the head with this, you know, are all of my investors going to be running to the door for liquidity? I think it's a fear, you know, and it's a valid fear right now because we don't have enough traction in the marketplace to prove that wrong yet. But what I can tell you is there is secondary trading happening. Companies are listing on these platforms. There is no mad rush to them. A, partially because I don't think most investors know about secondary trading. So they don't even know that this is an opportunity. Okay, that's the number one reason is awareness. I think it's always awareness that drives so little activity. Second is the activity that's happening on these platforms with these issuers, these investors, when it comes to secondary trading, relies on supply and demand. Okay, so you can have an investor that says, you know what, I want out uh, and I want to list my securities. The reality is, unless there's a buyer for those securities, you're not out. So people also realize that, you know what, you can list your securities, but you have to wait for a buyer to come in. There has to be sufficient demand for that company's security in order for someone to want to buy it. And so we're not seeing that full traction there yet. Only with the companies that have true opportunity and have probably done really good marketing power are you starting to see traction. So we're not really starting to see it. The other thing I tell these issuers is, you know, if you have a desire to raise a future round, if you have a desire to go public, there is no better way to value your company than a supply and demand decision to let the market decide what an investor is willing to pay for that security. Because then you don't have an argument. You know, VCs will sit behind a closed door. Investment banks will sit behind a closed door and price your IPO based on, you know, what they think the market will pay for it. But what these alternative trading systems do provide now is an actual proof point that says, these are what our shares traded for in the past. I think that's a baseline for where we are. I think we can go up from there because, you know, we've accomplished X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I would argue that that is significantly more telling than VC rounds just from, you know, B through E or something. I think I've seen you know, some of these rounds are so inflated right now that you wonder what the economics uh, would look like if it were all buyers and sellers, you know, involved in a true market. And you made a really good point. I mean, it's not as if entrepreneurs can't put essentially a floor on the, you know, they can say there's got to be an appetite, but the appetite needs to be, you know, you can't start you know, throwing shares away for pennies on the dollars because 
you don't like me or something, right? So there are actually, there are plenty of very informed regulations already around some of this, and it really does empower the entrepreneurs. It does seem like there is this shift happening where investors really controlled the entirety of this conversation, right? You had, uh, and the venture capital industry as a whole is not, you know, very, very old. So, and it's only developed as aggressively as it has because they've had, you know, a really great track record of creating these amazing companies. One of the things I'm seeing now is with this shift towards, you know, guard, with this shift towards having ATSs controlling secondary environments, letting people in and out at different stages, is it is actually shifting some power to shareholders and to entrepreneurs to kind of create the route that they think is best. And, you know, speaking with, you know, VC-backed company founders or bootstrappers, you know, people are looking for different things on different timelines. So I do see that while well, you said, you know, it is supply and demand and there's, you know, you've got to have a, there's probably a chicken and an egg scenario. I think both sides are slowly meeting in this kind of crazy environment that we're in right now. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I want to point out to you, just, you know, my crystal ball again, because we've seen the evolution of what's happening in the marketplace with VCs coming downstream, syndicating deals to the crowd. Okay, so I'm an investor in a VC fund. I'm an investor in a private equity fund as well. I sit and wait for liquidity events until, you know, I get that capital return. This is where this market's going to go to, mark my words. VCs make money by sending money in private equity, by returning money to their investors, okay? There's no money in without money out, okay? That's their mantra. The way in which we have these alternative trading systems, these secondary markets now have evolved to the point where VCs can say, you know what, let's take 10% of this hot company that's doing really well. We'll still have the 90% of it on our cap table, but we'll get rid of 10% that people pay for that. We'll get the money for that. We'll return that to our investors. Let's go out for our next fund. Uh, they're going to be thrilled at how we're doing because they can see actual, it's not a unrealized ROI at that point. You know, there's a way in which they can say, this is what we got for this. So we know it's proof of what it's valued at. And it allows them to actually raise more money. So they're going to be using these, you know, secondary markets, you know, to liquidate some of their investments so that they can get more investments down the road. Interesting. So we're going to have to look at some of these predictions. I remember I did um, try to think about, you know, out of the pandemic, what was going to change in just this past year. And everything never goes quite according to, um, you know, what you see in that exact moment. But it's really interesting to see what's newly available to the private markets. You know, one thing I think about all the time is, is the are the public markets really oriented to serving entrepreneurs with you know kind of a short term uh, mindset of analysts trying to put a value on your company twenty four seven and the private markets have a ton of appeal so it's my hope that this is a big step in the right direction to create all the best pieces as we say it around all the best pieces of the public markets uh, into the private markets with technology and infrastructure and you know I think from your experience you've really accomplished that from innovating from capital formation to liquidity. So, you know, a huge, huge success throughout the last decade. It's just so cool to talk to you about it. One of the things I did kind of want to mention just from Guard's perspective is that you're working with ATSs. Can you walk me through kind of what a typical interaction with Guard looks like and how can people get engaged with you to have some of these conversations if they overhear us? Sure. So if you're an issuer, you can go to guard.com and actually you can click on get started now. You can actually start playing around with the interface for free. Um, so you can see what kind of data fields are required for the manual exemption. 
and uh, we can work together on finding you a trading platform that will um, list your securities because there's several that we work with. If you're an ATS, we've got partnerships with several already. So you can reach out with us. The ATS is, there's no fee to an ATS for a guard report. The issuer pays the fee for the filing and the publishing of the report itself. So we just use the ATS as the conduit for the transaction. But if you're either the issuer or the ATS, if you're an ATS, we probably hook up an API link to you so that the issuers can just feed their information from the ATS directly to us to be published. An issuer, of course, can then just load their information manually through us. We do only work with audited financials. So your company must have an audited financial because that provides a level of credibility to the numbers that are disclosed in the audit in the guard report itself. And then we collect all that information. We send it through our Blue Sky compliance team. They review it for any questions that they might have. We kick that back. If there's no questions, it's published. And then your securities are ready to be freely traded. Now, I will tell you, reggae issuers that are out there, this is a great opportunity for you, okay? Because you can issue your securities and have them traded realistically the next day. Now, it takes a little work on our end collectively to collaborate to make sure that your you know, 1A that you file with the SEC, we have all that information as well incorporated in the guard report so that we can actually file that right after you get qualified and approved from the SEC too. So you could sell your securities and at the same time, once they're sold, file your guard report and then actually allow for liquidity of those securities. We've seen that with um, fractionalized issuers. So people that are, you know, collectibles, actually collectible is one of our clients, you know, a baseball bat, you know, a jersey, you know, some collector's item, they fractionalize, they buy that, they fractionalize it, they raise the money for that, and then they allow those securities to trade on a secondary market. The ability, the application for this is all over the place. We're seeing it with land, we're seeing it with, you know, just traditional company securities. But the reality is, if you want to have secondary trading, and you want to do it in a means that allows for public solicitation, you're going to have to need the, you know, guard services. Excellent. Well, that's so exciting. It's cool to see how many new opportunities there are for entrepreneurs and investors. And I'm positive that you'll continue to innovate in this space as, again, you are essentially an architect of it. So we're all very grateful to you for those of us who are building in real time here. It's incredible to have this opportunity to get into the details of how the mechanics actually work. So thank you so much for that. Uh, One question I know that uh, listeners have heard a million times by now, but what I like to finish every podcast with is essentially what you feel is most underestimated in the world today. doesn't have to be anything about what we've just talked about in markets or you know even sectors we've discussed, but is there anything that you feel is underestimated in the world today? And is there anyone addressing that problem? I am going to go on a complete tangent. As a, a dual working household with two children that are under five, the childcare thing needs to be solved for. If a kid is sick and can't get to preschool, if a nanny can't make it, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to have a nanny, but still can't come and you've got meetings, there's no solution out there. You know, if you, you know, we moved across country, so we're not next to family. So, you know, a kid's sick and, you know, God forbid, you know, in the age of the pandemic, they fear that, you know, COVID's there, you know, they're out from daycare or whatever for two weeks, you know, you're stuck. I want someone to develop the, you know, substitute nanny, the, you know, alternative daycare solution for those days when your parent, you know, you're kicked out of, you know, your nanny's sick, 
but you just need to drop your kid off at some sort of daycare somewhere so you can get your work done. And, and I have no problem just sitting there um, also working. So like a co-working space where there's a, a nanny share happening. I don't know. I just, you know, I just I constantly am faced with this probably four or five times a year. And each time it happens, it's like, why does this product not exist? <laughs> So not quite, uh, probably no one addressing that yet, but definitely a call to action for an entrepreneur or you know somebody to, to take on. I know you've got plenty on your plate. So if anyone's uh, you know, equally as motivated, uh, I'm sure that that's a, a nice call to action with Woody here, who's very well connected and will put you in the right place if, <laughs> if you're willing to help out there. So and I'll uh, pay, I'll pay, I'll pay. That's the most important part. <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's the problem with any startup getting uh, you know active early participants. So um, you've got one here if you've got a startup for Woody. But thank you so much again for being on the Modern CFO podcast, and I can't wait to circle back to see where this industry continues to develop and have you back right back on the podcast. So thank you again. Thanks, Andrew. It was great. Thank you. Thank you.